step into the mic today. You know, your host, Chris Miles, here with Ted Jeffries and the Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, Kurt Gowdy Award winner uh, in 2016, David Aldridge. But more importantly, for our podcast, the Mathagrad, American U alum, DMV through and through. Though he spent decades working for Turner at ESPN, he's still called the DMV home. Uh, DA, great to have you on today, buddy. Man, thank you for having me. It's good to talk with some D.C. people for once. It's nice. <laughs> this is really nice. <laughs> well, D.A., the other day I was uh, doing some work for 106.7, a fan here in D.C., and I was told by several callers mm -hmm. that the Redskins' name change is the biggest sports story of their lives. And I'm like, hold on. I got to check with the historian, the resident <laughs> historian himself, man. Uh, so, D.A., is that an accurate statement? I think of the championships since I've been here. Um, is the Redskins' name change in the pantheon of sports in D.C. history that high? Well, I'd say it's big. I think it's a big, big story. I mean, you know, the, you know I, don't think, I don't think it's too much argument that, that – that team's been the most successful team if you look at the whole history, right? I mean, the, the Super Bowls and, and the championships they won, you know, back in the 40s before any of us were born. But still, even though they've had some rough patches, real rough patches from time to time, they've been here the longest, they've won the most. So um, they're the, you know, it's not, as, it's not as clear as it was back in the 80s maybe, but they still are the, the biggest beat and the biggest team in town in terms of, I think fan interest and, and, and fan support when, when things are going right. Um, so I would say it's a big story, Chris. I mean, it's, it's right up there with, you know, the, the, like you mentioned the championships and, and, and um, you know, Maryland winning a national championship and Georgetown winning a national championship. I mean, that is that whatever people think of the name, everybody knows that name. It's synonymous with DC. It's synonymous with the football team. And um, for, for them to willingly be willing after decades of being as obstinate and stubborn about it as you can be to finally change it is a big deal. David, with that being said, a lot of uh, suggested names are being rolled out there. Do you have your own suggestion of maybe a top three list of David Aldridge's name changes out there? Well, I had always said, it's funny, Ted, I've been, I wrote a piece last week about this, and this was before they decided. I just thought it was the right time to write it about changing the name. And I thought you could change the name to the Americans and keep the logo because they are the original Americans. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, now, there are some people, and I've talked to Native American leaders subsequently to that that said, no, we get, you have to get rid of all imagery um, logos and, and mascots and things like that are, are still very damaging to, you know, Native American kids, high school kids, college kids, because they don't have any other symbols. They don't have any other people that they can look at as Native Americans in our culture. You know, they're just a shut out. All they have are being sports team mascots, and that's not healthy for them, right? So, so I thought about that. I still like Americans, but maybe you come up with another logo. Then I've seen Red Tails as kind of a, a tribute to the Tuskegee Airmen. I would have no problem with that. It allows you to honor the military, which I know they like doing, um, and, and do it in a way that African-Americans can actually be embraced as part of that as opposed to shunned. I think that would be a good way of doing that. Um, it's historical. It's, it is uh, in keeping with um, 
you know, the best of, of our military traditions as opposed to our worst. Um, so I could see that, um, you know, I, some of the other ones I'm not crazy about anything having to do with politics. I'm not crazy about because we, none of us agree on politics. Um, I just think that's going to be divisive. And the other things like the generals, I think is kind of kitschy and I'm not a big fan of that. So I would say Americans and, and red, to me, Americans and red tails, I mean, warriors kind of as a generic, if you don't tie it to native Americans specifically, you know, like I grew up in, in Northeast DC and the team, the teams there were called the Woodridge Warriors, but it had nothing to do with Native Americans. That they were just they were just warriors. You know what I mean? Like it didn't, it wasn't tied to any particular thing. It was just about the warrior as a fighter. Um, so if you wanted to call them the Washington Warriors, I, I wouldn't have any problem with that as long as you didn't try to again somehow tie it to Native American people in, in you know their community. Do you feel like the name has to be original? Because I've heard people say, well, you know, we've got the Golden State Warriors, or are or are you fine with it being, you yeah, know, no. something? I, yeah, I don't care. I don't care if it's a knockoff. Everybody's, I mean, there's, there's no original names. You know what I mean? Like yeah, everybody's yeah. a tiger or a bear or a warrior or a lion or, you know what I mean? So it's not, to me, that's not a big deal. I think people can make that distinction between the basketball team and the football team. Um, you know, I, I think that, the, I don't think that that should be a non-starter. If you like warriors, I mean, if that's what most people wind up liking, um, and again, as long as it's kind of generic, um, yeah, I could see that. I could, I could live with that. Yeah, I know you wouldn't approve of some of the, uh, the names I got uh, call-ins from the other day. The Washington Marion Berries was one of them. Um, the D.C. Swamp. And I was like, okay, guys, exactly. settle down a little right. bit. Let's not get decaf. too political. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. Um, but, you know, in, in just thinking about what we're seeing with Major League Baseball trying to get their season started and the NBA and all the, the issues they're having trying to get their top-tier players uh, to, to play. For the NFL, already taking some of the preseason games off the table, do you think there's a fear that they won't have an NFL season upcoming? I mean, what do you think it would take for the NFL to say, you know what, this is too much. we got to step away from this. Well, you know, Chris, I just don't know. Like every – the, if, if the colleges are any guide at all, we've seen any time they've tried to get groups together, they've had these massive outbreaks on these teams of COVID. You can't, the virus doesn't care if you're ranked number one in the country, you know what I mean? It doesn't care. Um, so, you know, I don't know how you can bring groups of people, but you can do all the social distancing you can. At some point, if it's football, guys have to hit each other. <laughs> You know, they have, that's the name. So that's how the sport's played. And you're going to have close in physical contact with people breathing and bleeding on each other. I don't know how you are going to avoid, you know, just huge outbreaks of, of, of COVID on both teams if you play a game. You know what I mean? Like, how do you get through a game and not have, not have 12 guys have COVID after you've been running and hitting and tackling the other team for for? you know, four quarters. So any, but if there's not, unless there's nobody that has it. And frankly, I just don't think that's possible that you can bring 106 players together and none of them have it. I would be very surprised if that were the case. Maybe you get lucky, but you know, just because there's so many guys on a football team, I guess they feel like they could maybe survive it. Maybe they feel like they could stand. They could still fill the team, even if nine or 10 guys are out but I think you're really messing with the quality of your product. You're really leaving yourself open to potential injury. 
if you have a team that has six starters out and is playing second and third string guys against a team with no starters out, I mean, I think that you're at, you're really running a risk for injury. And, and I just, to me, I just don't know how you get through 17 weeks of this without a forfeiture of a game or something or a team having to stop their season, um, you know, for a month. And what do you do if a game's forfeited? How do you make that up? You know, I just, I don't know. I mean, I know they're talking about these helmets with the shields in the front where, you know, the, the spit and the, you know, all that will be absorbed by the shield. I mean, it, it, try it, I guess. I mean, I'm not, I'm not against not trying it. I just, to me, I just am worried about sports kind of having to be feeling like it has to set the tone for resumption of normality. And when we've seen any group, again, any group of people, no matter what it is that they're doing <laughs> indoors or in proximity to one another, you have these outbreaks that happen two weeks later. And it's consistent, and it doesn't matter what part of the country it's in. So I don't know how sports can avoid that. When you think about um, the NFL starting and, and in college as well, um, say, for instance, you had a child that is playing college football. Yeah. What would your advice be to him despite, you know, considering all factors? What would you say to your, your, your child? It would be very difficult for me, Ted, to, to, to you know, okay that. And it doesn't matter because my wife would not allow it. So, <laughs> so that just, gotta, that just wouldn't power. be happening in our household. <laughs> they just would not be playing this year. So, um, But if it was up to me, I mean, I would have to really be confident that, you know, that school is going above and beyond when it comes to player safety and student safety because um, it's not just, again, the playing. It's living – with one another, it's the practice schedules, it's the weightlifting, it's the time at the training table, all of those things. Again, when you bring people in proximity to one another, this disease spreads and it spreads quickly. And I just don't know how you can avoid that playing football on a football team. It's just not possible. I don't know how you can do it. That's why I think the individual sports like tennis and golf and auto racing to a certain degree, I think they have a better chance of of getting closer to back to normal than the team sports. I just think it's going to be really difficult for the team sports this fall. We saw the Ivy League canceled everything, everything, all their fall sports across the board. There will be no fall sports in the Ivy League. And I think you'll see other conferences do that as well. DA, it's one thing for you to tell me that, you know, a league that doesn't allow their college football team to play in bowl games, like the Ivy League, to say, okay, we're not having sports, we're academics first, we're going to prove this to you and say we're done with it. But for the NBA to try and, and come back now in, in late July into August, um, do you think they're going to be able to finish the season when the bottom line is, is trying to make sure that these contracts are uh, played out and that the revenue is, is generated? I mean, that's who you're a Hall of Famer for this, right? Do you think the NBA will finish this season? I mean, I, I don't know, Chris. I mean, that's just the most honest answer I can give you is, I mean, if they were doing this in, you know, Boston or New York where the, where the disease is kind of – where the curve has been flattened and they've had real success with it, and, um, you know, the, the, the new cases can be contact traced and they can isolate people, new people who get the disease because they did so much testing in those areas and they got it under control. 
I might feel differently, but you going in the middle of one of the biggest outbreaks in the country in Florida, um, that's spiking, it's completely out of control in that state. And it's not that it is all in the Orlando area. It's not, but you know, Florida is people drive in Florida. They drive from Tampa to Orlando. They drive from Daytona to Orlando. They drive from Miami to Orlando. So people are constantly going back and forth to beaches and things like that throughout the state. It's not like everybody's sheltering in place in one, in one city, you know, in all their cities, they go back and forth. So again, you know, we talked, I, I do a podcast too. And we had Sanjay Gupta on last week and that was his thing was like, it's not so much the players. They think that they can probably keep the players safe. Cause again, it's only 15 guys on the team as opposed to 53. It's easier. Um, but it's the workers, like the people that are serving the meals, the people that are, that are turning down the beds, the people that are doing all of the, the limo driving and taking these guys from wherever they're going place to place inside that bubble, right? Um, they're still not walking, you know what I mean? <laughs> so they right. go, some, somebody's driving them somewhere, wherever they're going. Um, so, you know, what about those people who can't stay in the bubble? They have to go home at the end of their shift. They go to their house or their apartment. And their house and their apartments right in the middle of this pandemic. So again, well-meaning people, nonetheless, I think it's going to, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned and it's, it, it could be even worse for basketball because if you lose three or four guys on a basketball team, you can't play. I mean, you can try, <laughs> you know, right. you can try to play with six guys, but if three of them are starters or four of them are starters, good luck with that. You know, I mean, I think at a certain point, the, the integrity of the product has to be, something that people believe in. So I'm very, I'm just concerned about it because they're in the middle of Florida more than anything else. Yeah. We've already seen that with the, uh, with the Nets and the Wizards. Go ahead, TJ. I'm sorry. Dave, you're so intimately tied to the NBA, you know, for guys like LeBron James who started out initially, I'm not playing if it, you know, if there are no fans in the stands and he does a 180. Mm -hmm. um, but now, you know, he is seemingly the face, uh, the, the, the face behind the players that, that's advocating for them to go back. Mm -hmm. How much pressure is it on a guy like LeBron James with his team being one of the front runners to win a championship this year mm -hmm. to get guys motivated to get back and, and not be, you know, apprehensive about coming back and joining the teams in the bubble? Yeah, no, there's no question, Ted, that, that you know, whether it's LeBron or Chris Paul or any of the leadership of the union, you know, there's, there is the competitive aspect. They're all competitive. They're all super competitive people. They want to win a championship. LeBron's not getting any younger. He doesn't have too many more shots at it. He's on a really good team that does have a chance. Um, so I understand that, but let's not, let's not get it twisted now. There's some money on the table here, too, that they don't want to walk away from. And they've already given back some of their salaries for this year to the owners. So if they were to say, we're shutting it down, we're not going to play this year, I mean, the economic losses across the board for the players would be staggering. They'd be bad for the owners, too, but the owners got more money. I mean, that's just the bottom line, that the owners as a group have much more money than the players as a group. So, And I don't begrudge the players. I don't begrudge anybody from a financial standpoint saying, hey, is there a way we can resume? But to me, the bottom – but I, where I draw the line is if you can't do it safely, I don't think you should do it. Not right now. You know, I mean, I think – we don't know what we don't know. That's the scary thing about this disease. We have no idea what the long-term implications are. We were talking before about some of the new findings that they're coming up with now that they see about this disease. 
there's, there's evidence, there's been studies done about people who are really, not professional athletes, but people who really do take care of themselves, who are runners, who, who spend a lot of time physically training to stay fit, having really long-term damage after recovering, not after being sick, after recovering from COVID. You know, they don't have the lung capacity that they used to. I mean, that's a big deal for right. them. And, and again, if it happens to an elite athlete, that, that's a huge deal. You know, if you lose even a little bit as an elite athlete, you may not make a team. You may not win a title. So these are serious things. And I just, while I understand the, the desire from people monetarily to kind of get back to work, I don't think it's worth dying over. That's what I just don't yeah. think it's worth dying over. And that's my concern as all sports try to get back online. When you say try to get back online, and I think of a guy we've been anticipating getting back on the court and Kevin Durant. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if he's not able to play, you know, start a next season, whatever it is, because of COVID, that's one thing. Yeah. But to see him back on the court for his legacy, if he didn't play another game from here on out, where does he rank in the history of DMV hoops? Because for me, being a little bit younger, mm -hmm. I have him as the best basketball player ever from this area. Am I being short-sighted by saying that? Well, I mean, he's a great player. He's a champion player. He's won an MVP. He's certainly in the top three, two or three, three or four. You know, but again, I'm biased. I, Lenny Bias is the best I ever saw. Um, and you're never going to convince me otherwise <laughs> from this area. You're just not. Um, and um, I know part of that is nostalgia and sadness and all of the emotions we still feel. But, um, you know, I think certainly Katie is right there on, in the discussion. I mean, there's no question. But, I mean, again, you're going back to Elgin and Dave Bing and, you know, other Hall of Fame players – you can't just dismiss what they did. Elgin Baylor was a trailblazer, a trendsetter, did things that nobody else in the league could do at the time when he got into the league and was great for a decade um, and was is still one of the most underrated and unappreciated superstars, I think, of, of his era of all time, really. You know, Adrian Dantley. So, again, you can have the – you know, there's all kinds of guys that I think should be in that discussion. And Katie's certainly right at the top of the list. Um, if it's just putting the ball in the basket, I would say he's probably the best ever to come out of D.C. Um, because he does, he's just an incredible scorer. I mean, he can – he's an incredible, incredible scorer. Um, elite is not – doesn't even do him justice. I mean, he's better than elite. He's all-time at, at that. And, um, and that – and it's basketball because that's – in basketball, the object is to score. So <laughs> that means something. That's important. So, um, so yeah, he's right in the discussion. Can I just automatically say he's number one all time? No, I can't. DA, recently the Washington Wizards franchise lost an iconic figure in Wes Unsell. Mm -hmm. You know, I was but a youngster when he was in his heyday. Yeah. And I'm not trying to date anybody on this <laughs> on this uh, mm -hmm. podcast, but talk about his impact with the Wizards. Is, is he arguably the one of the greatest? Uh, well, bullets, I should say, one yeah. of the greatest bullets that relates him up for the Washington franchise? I, I think he's the best player ever in the franchise's history. Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't, and, you know, and honestly, I don't think it's especially close um, because all the other people that you would talk about, I guess you, you Elvin Hayes would be on that list, obviously. Um, Greg Ballard? Not on that list, no. Greg's a great player. <laughs> Greg, Greg was a really good player, but he's not one of the best of all time. Um, you know, he... Elvin or Wes was the best player in franchise history. 
um, because they were they were okay. They weren't very good when he got there. They became really good, and soon they became great. And they made four finals in ten years with him as the linchpin of that of that team. Um, so there's only two guys in the history of the league that have won MVP and Rookie of the Year in the same year. Wes Unseld and Will Chamberlain. That's it. There's nobody else that's done that. You know, so I don't think there's any question that Wes was the greatest player in the history of that franchise. And um, I had the, the great pleasure of covering him as a coach for five years when he coached the team. And as I said many times in the last few weeks, you know, he's the most honest man I've ever dealt with in 30 years in sports. He never lied to me. He always told the God's honest truth uh, every time I talked to him. Um, and he taught me so much about the NBA and about people and basketball. And, you know, I, I just revere him as, as one of the most stand-up human beings I've ever dealt with in, in three decades of doing this. Because he, he never um, – it's not that he didn't know he was good. He knew he was good. But he never, like, treated people badly because he was, he was a star. Um, he was always available and accessible, and um, I always appreciated that about him. That's awesome. When you look at the Wizards' all-time ranks in points and assists and steals, it's starting to look as if John Wall and Bradley Beal are going to be, you know, one, two, three across the board in those categories. But mm -hmm. is there anything they could do to catch the legacies of Wes and Elvin? Because it doesn't seem like it's possible. Like, they could finish – you know, across the board um, as far as all-time stats. But to accomplish what they did uh, for the Bullets franchise in the late 70s, is there anything that John and Brad could do to catch up to that legacy? Well, I know, you know, people decry ring culture now, and they say that you, that's not supposed to be what you, what you talk about. But, I mean, why, else, why do people do this? <laughs> People do this to find out who wins, right? <laughs> Why else do you play all these games? You find you want to know who the best team is. You want to know who won the championship in a given year, right? So, um, you know, so for, for John and Brad, I mean, they're going to have to get to a high level. They're going to have to carry their team to, a, to the level that Wes and Elvin carried their teams to, which is playing for championships, which is getting to conference finals and NBA finals and having opportunities to win the whole thing. Um, you know, the East is not the West. Um, so it's, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not, as it's not as tough as the West. There's not as many great teams in the East as there are in the West. So, um, you know, that's the challenge is can you take this team from where it is, which is kind of a, right now, a mediocre team to, to a very high level championship team. I do think you have to be fair because John's been hurt really for the last three years now. And so if he comes back next year and Brad comes back next year and they're fully healthy and, you add a pick in the, in the draft, maybe you add a piece of free agency and Hachimura gets a little better and some of your other guys improve. Then I think you can take a fair look at where these guys are and if they're, um, you know, capable of, of lifting their teams up to the level that they were at just a few years ago when they got to game seven in the second round against Boston. I mean, that's, you know, they were right there, you know, so I don't see any reason they can't get back there if they're healthy. They got Olenek. That's yes. what I call it. Of all things, to get Kelly Olynyk, man. Yes. TJ, I still can't believe that happened right. after the way they, they handled business that series <laughs> until that point. Right. Wasn't that a little bit of the Isaiah Thomas time as well? Wasn't he, he, he got him in the first two games, but but Chris is right. They they did lose to Kelly Olynyk in game seven, which is inexplicable to me. But. <laughs>
What are so you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Let's take a walk down uh, memory lane. You just mentioned you covered the NBA for 30 years. Uh, yeah. And you covered probably arguably the best player to ever lace him up, Michael Jordan. We just saw the Last Dance documentary series. Right. Talk about your time of covering MJ and, and the league and basketball during that time. We've seen changes. Just talk mm -hmm. about your experiences during that time of covering the greatest player probably of all time. Well, yeah, I loved the league um, back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I'm glad that, that people who maybe weren't around or who were young, very young back then got to see the last dance because they really kind of see what it was like back then. Um, I know that people kind of dismissed that era because there wasn't as much scoring and they didn't shoot threes. And so how good could the games have been? You know, I, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me to hear people say that. Um, but you can't, but there's nothing that even compares to the rivalries back then and the real, real dislike, genuine dislike that the people, the, the best players had for one another. And I don't mean that to dismiss it. I mean, that's why the games were so great because they really wanted to beat each other. It wasn't fake. It was real, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, Boston really wanted to beat LA and LA really wanted to beat Boston. Detroit really wanted to beat Boston. Chicago really wanted to beat Detroit. You know, it was, it was legitimate dislike. Um, and I thought that made the competition so much greater. Um, and, and the, the drama of those games so much greater. Um, so, I'm just glad that people got to see that and understand what it was like back then. You know, Jordan's the best player I've ever seen. Um, and, and he'll, you know, if you ask me who's the best player you ever saw, I'd say Jordan. Um, and so, I, but I didn't see Oscar play at his peak. You know, I didn't see Kareem at his peak. I didn't see Wilt at his peak. So I could not say, I could not say with certainty. So I defer to people who did. And they, you know, everybody has different opinions. Some say that Kareem's the best ever because of the, of the, you know, just dominance, the six MVPs, the points, the championships, all of it. Um, and then some people will say, you know, Bill Russell's got 11 rings. Who's better than that? You know what I mean? So I got to, I have to defer to people who saw those guys play when they were really at the top of their games. Um, but Michael was otherworldly. He had the greatest, he had the greatest will of anybody I've ever seen. It was the physical gifts were, were obvious. But to me, what made him better than everybody else that I've ever seen is that he had a stronger will than everybody else. He just would not let his teams lose. Um, I've said this many times. I saw lots of games where Michael was 9 of 25 from the floor. I'm not saying he, was, he shot the ball great every night. He didn't. But I never saw him get intimidated or dominated on a court. And everybody took their best shot at him, all the great players of that era all took their best shot and none of them, none of them dominated him. None of them. I mean, just think about, I, I just give the list of hall of famers, you know, Stockton Malone, Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, on and on and on and on and on that he just sent home. <laughs> they just didn't win anything when they played against him um, and his team. Uh, so that's why to me, I, I just think when he's, when he was at his best, nobody beat him. <laughs> Nobody beat him. So, I mean, I've talked to Isaiah about this, and I know Isaiah's got a better record. You know, he's got a winning record, I should say, against Jordan. Um, and, and that doesn't – you shouldn't dismiss that. The Pistons were a great team, and Isaiah was a great Hall of Fame champion. Um, I think Michael at his peak, it speaks for itself.
you know, I think it's, you know, the, the record and the, the titles speak for themselves. Um, so he was unbelievable. He was just an unbelievable presence force, you know, on the court, off the court, you know, everybody just, everything just gravitated to him. I can't even describe it. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. And I've been around all of the, you know, great players the last three decades. There's just nobody that, that creates that, that, that creates such, I don't know what it is in people. People just act so crazy around Michael Jordan. I've never seen it. I've never seen people act the way that they act when they're around Michael Jordan. They just act like, I don't know, children. I don't know. This is the best way to describe it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's something to see. DA, you brought up several points that make me think about Barcelona. I mean, talking about all of those guys from that era being on the same team, the fact that there was so much history, uh, so much, I don't want to say animosity, but competitive drive for those guys getting together and then practicing every day and trying to come together and win as a unit and dominate the the way that they did. Uh, Obviously, at that time, you knew that you were watching something special. But to see the way that international basketball has come over uh, to America now, are we seeing just the effects of that dream team and, and how long it's been on the game? And what was it like for you being over there? Did you see that coming as well? Like, could you see the young players gravitating uh, towards these guys? Well, I mean, at the time, there was still a big gap, right? I mean, you knew that you could t- you could respect the talent of someone like a Petrovic or a Tony Kukoc, you knew they could play, but there weren't enough of them. You know, they were all one-offs, right? I mean, you know, if the Yugoslavia team, the Yugoslavia country had stayed together, they may have had a, a different outcome. They, they had a great group of players. They just couldn't stay together um, because of the, the war in that country. Um, so you're saying there were no Lucas at that time? No, <laughs> like just come no, over and be no. top five player. Gotcha. No. no. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about what about Sabonis? Had he come? Well, healthy Sabonis, yes. Healthy yeah. Had Sabonis he come at the time group. when he got yes. drafted? They said he would arguably have been right. the most right. dominant center to play the game. Yes, healthy Sabonis would have been. Yes, that is true, Ted. He was that good. Now I would, I you know, I didn't, I didn't go to. I think it was Seoul in '88. I didn't go to those Olympics where they dominated and they beat John Thompson's U.S. team in the Olympics um, because of Sabonis. He was that good. Um, but yes, you're right. He's he was the one. He's probably the one exception at that time. Um, but then he got hurt. He was hurt for much of his career um, and wasn't the same. He's still very good, but not the same. Um, so, but other, there just weren't enough of them. And the real legacy of the dream team is that that really was kind of the catalyst for basketball in Europe and in Asia and in Africa and around the world really kind of taking root and becoming, you know, the international sport that it is today. It was people watching not just those dream teams, but watching the Bulls win those championships that really kind of made people interested in basketball and the NBA kind of, capitalized on that they would have a lot of clinics and they'd send coaches over there like you know Hubie Brown did hundreds of clinics overseas over the years and Chuck Daly and people like that and Lenny Wilkins went over there countless times and that really kind of got people interested in basketball and then those countries took the the next step so that by 2004 you know you saw you know Spain and Germany and some of those other countries really starting to become 
great teams. And then Argentina came up with, with, with Ginobili and those guys. Um, so that 10 to 12 year stretch after the dream team is really when those, the, the, the young men that were babies that were kids, when the dream team came about, by the time they became young adults, they really were into basketball. And that is, I think the legacy of the dream team is, is the international um, development of the game around the world. You know, DA, as uh, we, we are set to almost in this podcast now, I just thought about something as you were breaking that down for us. Sure. And just as a um, African-American sportscaster, I got to let you know something. When I look at my time in, in high school and college and to see you, Stuart Scott, Kevin Frazier, Stan Verrett, you know, I just want to say thank you uh, for, for you guys being that for us. Because if you see this generation – um, there's so many of us that know that, okay, we can do this. There's a spot for us in this industry. And I don't know how often we get the opportunity to say thank you to you. So just having you on this podcast, being in the same areas, you having, being on TV shows with you, like it's just an incredible experience, man. So uh, whether you know it or not, uh, just for us being a beacon out there by just doing your job and being professional at it, uh, you're, you've been a, a great inspiration for a whole generation. We appreciate you. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. I thank you. I need to echo the, those sentiments, David. Every yeah. time I see you on TV doing a, uh, an interview, I say, yeah, look at that DeMatha man right yeah, there. Come on, you guys know? Come on, we all know. Every time I see you on there, I stick my chest out. Just say, hey, look, that's a great DeMatha man out there representing that stag family. So no, I appreciate yeah, thank that. Thank you, sir. No, I appreciate that, Ted. I mean, I, I, you know, I had, you know, whether it was Ralph Wiley or Michael Wilbon and people like, like that in my generation that, that looked out for me and, and helped me when I was young and going all the way back to, you know, Sam Lacey and Wendell Smith who worked for the black press in the thirties and forties that, you know, championed Jackie Robinson getting into the major leagues that had to undergo indignities that I could never tolerate. And I don't know how they did it. Um, to, to cover sports and to do it with, with, as you mentioned, professionalism, Chris, but also understanding what their role was. Um, so, you know, we, I have no choice. You have no choice. We have to honor them um, by, by doing our jobs with not just talent, but with real, you know, dignity. Um, and uh, it's very important, I think, to, to continue to do that and be, be dignified in, in what you do and, and be um, that gentleman and the scholar that we all grew up with, right? And, um, and to try to continue to do that going forward. Absolutely. Thanks for stepping to the mic, DA. We appreciate mm -hmm. your time as always. Guys, I appreciate it. Anytime. Anytime.